You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Welcome back, everyone. I get to start us off this week, but before I do, we have a pretty special guest with us this week. Oh, we do indeed. Uh, I mean, we have sort the- of special. Well, the one and only <laughs> host of our anniversary special, Mr. Brett Sieber, a professional uh, naturalist yes. in his own right. You know, more or less. I think that's what some folks refer to me as. Um, but yeah, I'm very excited about being here on a show that isn't the anniversary show. I will do my best right. to stick to, I guess, maybe a more strange topic than it is my normal just strange questions. Uh, but <laughs> well, you're not here as the quiz. You're not here as the quiz master. You're no. here as a, uh, a a naturalist sharing information. Right, and so I will. I'll do the best to stick to that. I, I can't make any no. promises. <laughs> Does this mean that on the anniversary show, uh, which I assume we're going to have you back to be our quiz master, that we get to ask you questions about your topic? I mean, I su- I, I said su- that would be fair game. I, I think, though, in hmm. order to probably make it something where there's a little bit more meat on the bone, if you will, I'm going to have to be a special right. guest a couple times just so you have a few things to pull from. Otherwise, <laughs> oh, just a one, it may, unless this show goes so horribly awry, then you're like, well, it's, it's just, <laughs> it's best guess, we leave him mm-hmm. in his, nat- his original role. So. His, his natural habitat. Uh-huh. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. All right. All right. Sounds good. Let's oh, hear man. it, Rachel. What do you got? All right. So... This week, I think I have something pretty special. So we've talked a couple times uh, on the show about flight. And we've talked about insects. We've talked about a variety of all of those things. Um, Yeah. Kirk is very intrigued. Uh, Well, no, we've talked about like flying snakes and flying spiders. So I'm like, like, oh, God, what else is going to be flying that we don't want to fly? (laughs) Pigs? So, <laughs> ooh. There would it's be some good. bets. It's still good. It's still good. That would be down. No, not pigs, unfortunately. But we've talked about all of these different flying things and the different methods that different organisms use to fly. Yeah, yeah. But this week, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about, like, altitude when it comes to flight. And so it, how a specific high things fly? Exactly. How high things fly. Now, generally speaking, there are, uh, we think of birds as generally being the high flyers, and you would be correct. Uh, generally speaking, they are the things that reach the highest altitudes, you know? Like the okay, griffin yeah. vulture is the highest flying bird uh, at 37,000 oh, yeah. feet. Uh, well, get the out. 37,000 feet? 37,000 feet. Which is how many Rachels uh, is that? So many Rachels. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, if you look, it's like seven or eight thousand feet above the top of Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. Wow, 
And so like, you're looking up, and there, you know, you, you, yeah. you can barely breathe, and there's a bird just say, gliding by, they, seven thousand feet above your head. Their lung capacity and ability to take in oxygen has got to be just off the charts. Oh yeah, oh, and yeah. they are a giant bird too. Um, but they actually have. I'm not talking about griffin vultures this week, but while researching, this <laughs> did come up. Um, they actually have like a special hemoglobin that helps with oxygen intake so it came up so their birds are insane and crazy and they can go really really high but i wanted to ask you we've talked about it on the show but how high do you think insects can go Ooh, oh boy this feels like a trick question it might I be. mean, it, I, like, I, I got to imagine it's something like a dragonfly that's going to go high enough, right? It's got to be something bigger that has the capability to. Are we talking, you know, we're talking flying. I mean, I can imagine some really small stuff that could get just completely swept up. Swept up, yeah. In air currents and end up just, you know, hanging out at 60,000 feet or something <laughs> ridiculous like that. As so, insects want to uh, do. Yeah. I'm going to say higher than birds. Ooh. But maybe not on their own accord. Whoa, higher than I'm gonna. Ooh. I'll give you a number. I'm gonna go ten thousand feet. Completely arbitrary. Ten thousand feet. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna All use right. some science here I, because I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna try to back up my answer. I know. <laughs> okay. uh, here's what makes it hard. You see, we. In order to know if they went higher than birds, we'd have to have a way to sample the air at that height. And it gets very tricky because, like, say, airplanes, mm-hmm. you know, anything more than a commercial jet, you're not really getting above 30, I want to say it's 34,000 feet. 35,000, like yeah, something even, like that. Even, yep. even some of the, you know, uh, classified military stuff where they won't say exactly how high it goes, you know, you're probably looking at 60,000, 70,000 feet. And I don't think they're really, you know, doing a lot of, uh, taking a lot of research projects for grad They don't got to sweep that, that out the window at that height. No. Huh? You could, yeah. you can send balloons up very high though to the edge of space and take air samples, and I could see them doing an air sample that high and find. I know they found bacteria and stuff at those heights. So, mm-hmm. gosh, you want me to put a number on it? I might. What did you say, Brett? Yeah, I said, 10, said ten thousand. So go prices right and go ten thousand and one, just to. <laughs> I'm gonna go ten thousand and one. Although I, I'm gonna guess it's yeah. more like fifty. Gosh, I hate more. You. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so generally speaking most insects are found at twelve thousand ish feet okay um for, for like a top like when height. you say hold on when you and that's, that's, that's the sort of the, the top height for where you don't find much above that you don't find a ton like above most insects that, yeah most insects are not at that height nope. like you know yeah. house flies are so not flying They're like when they were doing the right so when they were doing like uh like when charles Lindbergh was Flying over the um, Atlantic, he actually was conduct helping conduct uh-huh. some uh, insect studies uh, way back in nineteen. Oh, quite cool! Starting Dang. in nineteen twenty-six, uh, and so he was flying Ooh. over Greenland at like seven thousand to twelve thousand feet, and he was uh, had sticky glass okay. slides uh, oh. out. <laughs> okay, all right, and was able to actually collect insects at those heights. But the highest I can verify that I can verify that a lot of insects fly about 
four feet off the ground. Based I can on, verify that. Uh, as what well. gets deposited on my windshield? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Exactly. But for the most similar, part, similar similar process. Exactly. But there was a there was a single termite that was trapped um, on an airplane um, in 1961, and it was uh, captured at 19,000 feet. So that's the record. Okay, so when I said 10,001, I think, uh, thanks for the suggestion, Brett. I, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Technically, yeah. <laughs> but I still stand by this idea that maybe there could be stuff higher. So I, I reserve the right to have my whatever, 50 or 60, whatever I said. I, I mean... I think someday we'll find... We could find something up there. They they could. So you the said winds this... are strong enough. Anything's possible. You said this thing was stuck to a plane. Yes. Um, that one was collected in an insect trap, yeah, from a plane. So are we certain the plane collected the insect at 19,000 feet, or is there any chance this thing collected it on the way up while it was on the ground? That is a great question. That particular uh, plane was a 1961 study by J.L. Gresset. The trap itself was, and the plane, the flight was to sample air up at height so not down on the ground so i'm hoping that they controlled sure yeah they controlled for those there wasn't one termite like hanging out on the door the whole time going ah ah, ah." legs just and the door opens oh i get to go inside (laughs) oh my god well (laughs) well apparently like they uh that particular flight collected 1610 insects and okay so there were others okay all right yeah so there were others um that one was just at the highest uh height um but 97 percent of those insects were alive and undamaged and two the remaining two percent so there's three percent left from all of that um two percent were alive but damaged and only one percent was dead I can't imagine like hitting an airplane at that speed at that altitude and being like, no, I'm cool. Right. That'd be crazy. I'm good. Yeah. And the thing that really like got me onto this was the fact that um, I saw this a while ago. It's called the insect superhighway. And towards Mm -hmm. the equator, it could be anywhere from like 6 billion bugs. Because generally speaking, it's not just flying insects who are up that high. It is anything that is small and light enough to catch the breeze and follow the turbulence. Right. Um, but they found bumblebees at 18,000 feet, which Whoa, is huh. wild to me. A bumblebee? Bumblebee. Like, I feel like they don't get more than like a foot off the ground sometimes, you know? I know. Uh, but a bumblebee. That's, well, yeah. You know, I guess bumblebees They've, get sucked up in tornadoes too, you know? They do. Right? Um, but I will say like they were, uh, th- hmm, Okay. I said 18,000 feet. So those bumblebees Wait, were found at Mount Everest at above at above 18,000 feet. They were still like elevation wise. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's a little different. Than that is a little different, but the, the rest of them so you're are just living on a mountain. Oh, say so. Wait, wait, wait. It was a bumblebee much. that was living okay. on Everest at yes. 18,000 feet. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. at 18,000 feet. However, they were able to... I mean, that's to... sort of like if a human jumps on the side of Everest, you're like, 
humans were flying at 18,000 feet. Right. That, yeah. And, and two. Yeah. And two. Well, they were able to take those bumblebees and subject them to, like, the air velocity and, like, uh, the thinness of the atmosphere. And they were able to still yeah. fly at 29,000 feet. So... I suppose it, it, that is a good point that it's like, you know, even if they're not, um, you know, they're only two feet off the ground, mm-hmm. uh, they are still, like you're saying, flying in that very thin, low yep. oxygen air. So mm-hmm. uh, it's the, kind of the same as flying just over in the ocean. Some ways, in some feet. ways. Right. Yeah, it's some just ways. they have a place that they can set okay. down to rest all as right, well. All right. Yeah. I'm, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm coming around to it. I'm coming around to it. <laughs> I mainly just wanted to talk about the insect superhighway this week um, because I've heard about it before and doing a little bit of research from uh, the NPR and the um, there's an article on the NPR as well as the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences. They had some really good um, articles to like be able to read and I, I just I've heard about this before and I wanted to verify and like see if it was actually a thing and share it because I find it wild because like you all were saying, I don't really expect insects to be flying much more than like a couple of feet above the right, ground. Yeah. Maybe you, know, you see like dragonflies in the prairie up a ways and kind of zip zapping around, but not thousands of feet right. in the air kind of thing. So. Exactly. Huh. So I'm like, I guess it makes sense because there are insects that migrate too, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, they're wild. Fascinating. Yeah. So that's what I have for you all this week. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. Cool. And when we return, we will have Mr. Brett Seabrer. <gasps> I'm so excited. Ooh. Yay. So we are now back, and it is my turn. Um, so I've got three animals. I need to know, eat, ride. Just kidding. That's not what we're doing this week. <laughs> <laughs> That's not what we're doing this week. Oh, boy. But I do I'm need fully you ready for a, to play that game. <laughs> I do need you for a moment to pretend you are an animal, which probably shouldn't be hard because, well, we are you animals. are. You are. (laughs) I want you, though, now to pretend you are an animal who communicates almost entirely with sound. But the sound you're making either isn't heard or recognized by other animals of your species. Where does that put you? Hmm. That feels useless. I guess maybe feeling the vibrations? But, yeah. like, um, you can't hear the sound, but can you... Do you want to know where mm. that physically puts us? Or, like, what sort of mindset does that the put mindset. us into? The like, if, you, if, yeah, oh, if other I'm members lonely. of your species, yeah, that's, and, odd, you know, that's a perfect, I think, word for this and leads into uh, 52. And I'll explain in a moment what 52 is and why this is important. Um, yeah, because okay. I, I, thought, I thought the number was 42. It's 52. So that's the oh, meaning that's, of uh, the universe, yeah. yeah. Yep, that's the nope, meaning 52. of the universe. Rachel, this is even bigger. Ooh, yeah, it's by 52. 10. Um, okay. So 52's story kind of starts with the Cold War. Uh, so the United States set up this massive sound surveillance system in the ocean, a whole network of hydrophones 
trying to track Soviet subs, right? They're trying to keep an... Yeah, we, we, we talked about this on the episode about the the mysterious underwater sounds is not, not that long ago. So Yeah, and so, Same you one. know, and that was it. You know, as they started listening, yes, they heard subs, but so many other sounds that were coming out that they didn't have any idea. Some that they just attributed it to be some sort of crazy, bizarro monsters that lived in the depths of the oceans. Uh, <laughs> right. But some right. of these folks associated with this, it's called, the the, the acronym was SOSIS for the Sound Surveillance System. Yep. Uh, they mm -hmm. knew enough that, what they were hearing was something that marine biologists, oceanographers, they would want to hear this kind of stuff. But, of course, it was all classified. Well, as the Cold War kind of slowly sputtered out, they decided to share these archives with oceanographers. They said, hey, why don't you start listening to some of this, some really bizarre things, let us know what you think. Uh, one particular oceanographer, whale extraordinaire, by the name of William Watkins, got a hold of these recordings. Uh. Now, he spent a lot of time listening uh, to recordings of, you know, various whales. And as he started listening to these, yes, the humpback whales, the blue whales, the fin whales, stuff that typically is the 15 to 30 hertz range, which as humans, I think the lowest we got is 20 or so. 20 hertz. 20, yeah. Yeah. Lucky, right. Yeah. But that's super low. We're talking low vibration-y, um, where most of these big whales are super low. Mm -hmm. There was one that he picked up at 52 hertz. One. And as he went Whoa. through these recordings and he was tracking these things, one whale continued to come out at 52. And it didn't make oh. any sense because everything else was, you know, was completely different. And so he started then following this whale. And from beacon to beacon, year after year, 12 years he followed this whale up in the Gulf of Alaska oh, wow. was where this was hanging out. Um, okay. And then in 2004. I love science. <laughs> yeah, right? So in 2004. Can you imagine being a scientist? Sorry. Just imagining a scientist just going like, I'm going to follow this one whale. And that's going to be right. my, that's my project. Right. And so he, he kind of likened this whale trying to talk to maybe other whales, kind of sounding like Mickey Mouse high-pitched, squeaky voice, and not making sense. Hey, everybody! And, of course, you know, he, so he picked up this stuff. It was late 80s, early 90s. In 2004, he passes. Now, he had published a ton oh. of other papers, but he didn't publish anything on this one particular whale because he didn't feel he knew enough information about it. He didn't have enough conclusive oh, okay. evidence for him to say, it's a blue whale, it's a fin whale. I don't... So he kind of left it. Well, some of his colleagues... Mm, okay took his work and eventually in 2004, you know, shortly thereafter, published it. And over time, over the next handful of years, it started to kind of leak out that there was this seemingly one whale by its lonesome calling to maybe no one in the ocean. And that story wow. started to grab people. They're like, yep. well, hold on a second. Yeah. Because, Rachel, you nailed it. You was like, the loneliness. That was the, yeah, I know you're the only one. You can't talk to anybody. Well, that's like, it. And I know we anthropomorphize a lot. And, and, but at the same time, 
it doesn't take a lot of research for you to kind of see that animals have, fe- I mean, your dog, you know when your dog is happy, you know when your dog is yeah. sad. I mean, you can mm-hmm. tell these things. And so to think that other animals, and scientists have done research too with animals and brains and looking for the areas of the brains that elicit certain feelings and emotions and whales having such huge complex brains, it does not take a leap to think that this particular whale could be experiencing those things. So anyone who'd ever felt yeah. alone, anyone ever felt like an outsider, was immediately attracted to this whale. Um, the right. super right. super popular K-pop band, BTS, recorded oh, a song yeah. in 2015 called Whalian 52, and it was about this whale <laughs> shouting as loud as it could into the void where no one could hear it. Um, and so it, it, I mean, message boards. It's like it, a metaphor this, for TikTok. This yeah. Be, yeah, right, pretty much. This thing really took on a life of its own. Well, in 2015, mm-hmm. a professor from Cornell by the name of Christopher Clark basically said, listen, folks, the other whales can hear this guy. They know he's there. They're probably just not sure how to respond because it's at such a frequency yeah. that they're, un, they're not used to hearing. One mm-hmm. other individual who, you know, kind of a part of the masses who picked up on this and became really fixated on it was a man by the name of Josh Zeman who happened to be a documentary film maker. And he thought, oh you know what? How great would it be if we went and looked out and found the loneliest whale in the world? And so oh he and, and he was told by scientists, listen, this is like looking for a needle in the haystack but your odds of finding the needle <laughs> right. are greater. And so... If you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, <laughs> the ocean, she'd be real big. Well, well right, but then you think large. about it. You're looking for an animal that's maybe one of the largest that's ever lived on the planet, and yet it's still being told to you that the needle is going to be easier to find. Uh, he got a Kickstarter well, yeah, going. Yeah, because it's, it's huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whales are giant, but there's a lot of whales. In Correct. the ocean. In, a lot of ocean, yeah. So he raised $400,000 to hire, oh, wow. uh, you know, a captain and a boat, you know, scientists, uh, tech people, because they had drones, bunch of money, we're going to go do this. And then a couple scientists said, hey, by the way, you know, this was now late 20-teens, 2015, 2016, as he's trying to put this together. Mm-hmm. They said, we have not heard from this whale in 10 years. It most likely oh. is dead. <laughs> <laughs> and you're going, well, hold on. You, what, that, wow. you know, file that in the... I just raised $400,000. No one mentioned right. this fact. Maybe, information maybe that someone should have said something. To me, information would have been useful yesterday. to me yesterday. That's, uh, <laughs> yep. Yeah. But, so then he started pleading with the with the Sosis folks, like, hey, I, I need you to look. I want help. This is what I'm trying to Come do. Come on, he you got, heard this. He was really getting nowhere with these folks. Mm-hmm. Eventually, a few scientists picked up on his plea, kind of put a call out, and he gets a phone call from this guy that said, hey, we found your whale. And he's like, no oh. way, the 52 hertz? And he's like, yup. He said, Gulf of Alaska? And the guy goes, nope. We're off the coast of California, not far from L.A. Get What? Okay. All right. So That's way easier to get so, to. Right, and that's it. And so now this thing is really, it's on. And one of the guys he's yeah, having right. come with is a guy who has spent 30 years studying blue whales. And so oh. this guy knows where they are. He knows, you know, behaviors. He's perfect. So they got seven days to go on this trip to go find this. Now, this guy that he's bringing with, the blue whale specialist, back in 04, tagged 
a whale and got a skin sample. And it was hmm. one that when he when he tagged it, it was with other blues, but he said it didn't look necessarily like a blue whale. And he goes, and it wasn't a fin oh. whale. His thought was, this thing might be some sort of hybrid. Well, a sure hybrid. enough, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they send the stuff back to the lab, 50-50 hybrid, blue and fin whale. So this, thing, this thing's been tagged, and they've been continuing to follow it since 04. So there's data on this whale. And so this guy's like, hey, there's a chance that this is the whale, the whale that you're hearing. So now everyone, yeah. I mean, it was so much fun. Um, you know, I, I rented the documentary. So, wait, so when you say tagged, they have a, they have like a radio transmitter. Yes. On it? Like they could track it down whenever yep. they want. Oh, okay. Yep. And so, so cool. I watched the documentary on this last night. I was super, I'm like, well, I gotta, I gotta know everything there's to know about this whale now. So the, it was fun <laughs> to see these scientists though, who'd been doing this for decades, still super excited about finding those answers. Right. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so they go out. Uh, their plan was to try to find, um, you know, a blue whale and throw a tag on it to hopefully track it so that they c it would lead them to potentially other blue whales so they could, you know, be in a bigger group, have a better sure, chance, sure, better yeah. odds, all that kind of stuff. And uh, excuse me, they get one. And then eventually, I think the tag, the t at some point, the tag falls off during these seven days and they recover it. Uh, not having mm -hmm. a ton of luck. Bits and pieces. They had blue whales that got close, but they didn't quite tag them. Uh, you know, they're putting out uh, beacons every now and again and they're listening. So they're picking up other sounds. They're just doing everything they can in this area. And again, small but still massive area of the ocean trying to find right. something. <laughs> right. It gets to day seven. And they're kind of just, you know, you could tell these people are defeated. They feel they're not super happy about this. They head out to this spot that was super windy, but they felt it was going to be, if they could get out there, it was going to be a good spot. And they ran into blue whale after blue whale. Some of the scientists said they'd never seen anything like it. And the giddiness and the excitement, it was wow. amazing. <gasps> they're throwing beacons out. They're listening. I mean, everyone's got fingers crossed. And then the screen that they're watching sonar on, picking up these sounds, goes completely red and they look up out the window and sure enough, it's a giant freight ship coming through. And no. then they start talking about how this place where so many of these whales use as kind of a highway also happens to be one of the busiest shipping highways in the world. And these freight Ugh. ships are completely, yeah. you know, and they got into this part about how much they reduce the capability for these whales to talk. I mean, whale sound, by the way, that travels at times up to 13,000 miles, which this Insane. calling to each other over, it is, it's nuts. But they said it reduces it so much so that not only do they increase volume, but also frequency they're calling. And it really puts a lot of stress on the whales. And the one thing that made me laugh, I, oh, I laughed out loud when I was reading <laughs> it. So after 9-11, they were doing a study in the waters off the coast of California. You remember, after 9-11, nothing was taken off airplane-wise. Boats weren't leaving. I mean, there was a couple weeks of just mm -hmm. nothing. Shut well, they down, were doing, yeah. they found that the stress level, the stress hormone levels found in whale feces off the coast of California during that time dropped precipitously. And I'm going, wait, 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 hold up. Wow. <laughs> whale feces. <laughs> we're, is this like, is this Where a water are you finding sample? That? Because it's substrate floating around, in like it was a if it's a straight water sample, I get it, 
But if you're like having to net some sort of clean pinch <clears throat> floater out in the ocean and then pick through it, <laughs> I I don't know what that looks yeah. like. That's but uh, I, that's what undergrads do in the lab. We can I, find I, you pictures, I guess. I, I probably right. And so <laughs> basically, this day seven when they thought they were going to get close gets completely shut down by this freighter. And then that's it. And so the guy, the scientists are kind of crushed. The documentary guy is crushed. Um, but then they had, as part of the SOSA system, these beacons where, again, they knew that this whale this guy had marked in 2004 had been passing through this area. And so he, they went uh -huh. back and they, they listened to the time frame where in the past, each year, this whale's coming through. And the whale went through there, zero sound. And they go, well, here's the deal. We don't know then if it's not your whale or if it mm -hmm. just right. wasn't making noise. And so, again, the guy's, like, looking all bummed. They go, but. And he goes, what do you mean, but? They said, during the exact same time period, over a different beacon, another 52 hertz whale was heard. And so they ah! said, now we're looking at there's potentially two of them. Two. And, and, oh. and so... so but, right. Like what the, the thought, like what me, what got this? I mean, yes, I was super intrigued and I wanted to like them to find this whale. But I started to think mm -hmm. more about, you know, animals and be it a hybrid and hybrids come about for so many different reasons. Some of it being, you right, know, human right. intrusion on a habitat when there's just you they can't move as much. If there's lack of possible mates, you see some of that go down. But the mm -hmm. other thing, when we think about evolution and we think about mutations and we think about things that stick and things that don't stick. How many animals along the line have been like the 52 whale where it's seemingly kind of on its own path for whatever reason? Either it looks slightly different, it sounds slightly different, it acts. I mean, there's something about that in there where then you just kind of go, yeah, I, I, I want to know more about hmm. – obviously the, the animals that are here now are the ones who, you know, evolution has – seen fit, you know, or not so much. See, I remember you had that argument on the one show about, you know, best fit or whatever. Um, right. But the ones that are here now for a reason. And you go, how many of those others along the way that threw something out that was just a little bit different were just lost in time and didn't get mm -hmm. followed the way that this 52 hertz whale did? Um, huh. They still think it's the hybrid and that the hybrid is throwing off sure. a different sound. Um Interesting. But it Maybe. was, yeah, to me it was it was fascinating um, so that it came out of the surveillance system and it's, you know, been That's picked so up cool. by multiple scientists who are trying to figure out or get to the bottom of what what exactly this is. So. Oh, so cool. Yep. So, Kirk, if you're looking for awesome. a second career after being a naturalist, I do believe, you know, in your free time, once you retire, you could probably pick through whale feces uh, and make yeah, a there we go. So, <laughs> wow, that's 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 your takeaway, huh? <laughs> your face. Uh, all, right. <laughs> all right. Well, <laughs> that's what I Wonderful. have for you. We're gonna take a short break, and then uh, Kirk has promised to uh, make us squirm with whatever it is he's bringing to the table this week. Probably, yeah. Oh, Awful. interesting! Interesting choice of words, Brett. Interesting <laughs> choice of words. You shall see. Oh God! See you in a minute.
Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strangebynature. See you soon. Welcome back, you guys. Let's talk about tapeworms. God, no. No. No, no I don't no. want to talk about no. tapeworms. I didn't report these in fourth grade. I hate them. Unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, um, I don't I want to. I cannot believe that we haven't talked about tapeworms yet. We, I know both of you know a bit about tapeworms. Yeah. Obviously, Brett did that report in fourth grade. We all read. Uh, um, no. <laughs> no. None of us read that. Some of our listeners probably know a bit about them as well. Um, but one of the things we like to do on the show is surprise each other. So the tapeworms that you're probably thinking about are not the tapeworms that I'm going to talk about. Thank I don't God. Think. Um, are yours nicer? The kind of tapeworms you're probably thinking of are a... Mm. Mm. No. Uh, I, the kind of tapeworms you're probably thinking about are like a human intestinal parasite that you can primarily get from eating raw or undercooked freshwater fish. Yeah. Is that what you're thinking of? Uh, yes. Yeah. Probably. Uh, they are strange indeed and absolutely something one of us will talk about on the show someday. Won't but be that me. day nope. is not today. So the Parasites, tapeworm I want to talk about this keep week... Giving. Yeah. Or taking. Uh, is something called, and I'm going to do my best to pronounce it, here it comes, uh, Tania solium is the name of this tapeworm. And it is, well, it's really something. Uh, it can actually cause a couple of different diseases in humans. And I think this is really interesting. Uh, what kind of disease you get depends on whether you ingest the larvae or the eggs of the tapeworm. And basically they act uh, different in the body. What happened if you cool. eat both? Now, Do you get both? Oh, well, Ooh. then that you probably oh, just wait for God. it. So, oh, I hate that. <clears throat> first up, how do they get in your body in the first place? Uh, there's two main ways. Oh, uh, the main two. way is eating, for this particular species, is eating undercooked pork. Now, I literally have pork chops sitting in my fridge right <laughs> at this moment. <laughs> so don't think this uh -huh. has not been in my brain. Eggs are larva, uh, well, buddy. Eggs are larva. This topic. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Well, we'll find out. Uh, well, actually, mm. um, interestingly, you say that if it was one, it would be larva and not eggs hmm. uh, because it has to do with their, their biology. We'll talk about that. So the uh, Tania solium Ugh. larvae can hang out in pigs and infect them. Uh, and then when we eat the pigs, uh, it gets passed on to us. Now, here's the good news. Properly cooking your pork will completely eliminate the risk of getting these parasites uh, assuming they were even present in the first place, which for most most of us listening, they're probably not. Right now, here's the something I think is really weird. Um, it is completely a human's fault if the pigs have the parasite at all. Pigs huh. are only a partial host to the parasite. Uh, it turns out it cannot actually complete their entire life cycle within the pig because pigs um, like are missing a certain enzyme that humans have in their body. So the furthest they can go in their life cycle is to become larvae in the pigs. They actually must move on to a human host in order to continue the life cycle and survive. 
So that that means is the only way pigs can get infected is not from other pigs, but rather from humans. And the only way that can happen is if pigs have access to human feces. Oh, now, okay. Jeez Louise. <clears throat> that's not usually a situation <sighs> that we run into in this country, uh, but in parts <laughs> of the world where human sanitation is not a given, mm-hmm. there are ample opportunities for pigs to be exposed to human waste. Ample. Gross, mm-hmm. but that's the reality of the situation. Yeah, so if a human goes to the bathroom outdoors and they are infected, their larvae can end up in the soil, water, or even in vegetation. If a pig drinks water that's contaminated with human waste, uh, they can become infected. And as we know, in some parts of the world, untreated human waste uh, is still emptied into rivers, right? Mm-hmm. So I said earlier, I guess, if a, if a person goes to the bathroom outdoors, but it, it really, even in places with toilets, if the wastewater goes into the sewer, but that sewage water isn't treated and just goes right into waterways and pigs are drinking from those waterways, you can have the same issue. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't even have to be direct contact. Uh, and you can see how it may actually be easier than it seems for a pig to actually get infected in the first place. So I did say, when I talk about humans, though, there's two main ways to get it. Uh, one could be from eating that pork, but the other way uh, also involves food, but not necessarily eating uh, pork. It can actually be from any food, eating any food that is contaminated. I'm sorry, I have to say well, this. I uh, contaminated with feces of an infected person okay. can get you sick. Uh, pretty nasty to think about, but basically imagine, <laughs> sorry, nah. imagine uh, an infected person cooking your dinner and maybe they didn't wash their hands after going to the bathroom. And well, there you go. So it's a typhoid Mary situation. Infected. I want to go back to I looking mean, it for the I would be whale. at that point. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. So what happens if you get infected? Uh, I know that's what we're all really interested in want to yeah. know, right? So no. absolutely. Can't if wait. You eat, Love yeah, this if you eat so the much. larvae. If you eat the larvae, you become a host with a tapeworm growing in your intestines. This is the pretty typical, like, tapeworm, you know, infestation thing. Kind of classic situation that I think a lot of us have heard about. These particular ones can grow between two and seven meters long. No! That's six and a half to 23 feet. No! In your what? intestine. Why was I not like warned before this show? I could have. Oh my god! <laughs> I told you this one was gonna make you squirm. I did warn I, you. I I thought about having a snack after this. I don't want one now. No. <laughs> not unless what it's would, some what sort would be of the like... worst snack to have after this topic, like uh, um, laffy taffy. Oh licorice. god. E- All right. The worst part well, is I have licorice just waiting for me. Or or a ham awesome. sandwich. Ham sandwich, exactly. Now, each this is really interesting biologically. Each segment of the worm actually has its own reproductive organs. Mm -hmm. So each segment can produce its own eggs. And each segment can produce thousands of eggs. Now, if you are infected, not only do you have the issue of having uh, potentially 23-foot-long tapeworm Uh in your intestines, you are also shedding thousands of eggs in your feces. So Uh that's horrific. I hate Um, that. But there's something even worse... Oh, good. So there's there's something even worse? worse. What do you mean? Uh, it's, you already happen. have a parasite that's steep, like taking nutrients and no, things away it's from you. Oh, I can see it. What? That's worse. That's worse. <laughs> that that is gross. But this is I, this is actually uh, from a uh, maybe not worse in the sense of grossness, but worse medically. Oh God! Um, what if instead of eating the larvae, you end up consuming some of those eggs? <gasps> 
So getting infected with the no. eggs of this particular tapeworm is bad. Uh, these <laughs> eggs, these embryos of the tapeworm do not stay in your intestines. Mm. They actually pierce through the intestines and they can infect or infect the rest of your body as well. Oh. Uh, in the worst... <laughs> no! Are you okay, Brett? Are you okay? Well, I mean, You're so, going to make it? Like multiple tapeworms heading oh. out into any part of your body. Well, we'll talk about it. In the worst oh. situation, no. they can actually get into your central nervous system. No! And you end up this with a disease awful. called neurocystocercosis. And uh-huh. as the tapeworm develops, cysts form around them. And it's actually the cysts that cause most of the problems rather than the actual like tapeworm itself. Oh, God. Uh, it sounds like depending on where the cysts form and how your immune system reacts, you may have basically no symptoms or things can or, get bad. Really, really bad. Uh-huh. Uh, first up, you might experience headaches. Uh, part of the reason why is that your brain may actually be swelling inside your skull because oh, you have cysts with baby tapeworms inside ah. your brain. <laughs> why wasn't this a Halloween topic? My God. Yeah. Oh, this Kirk. Yeah. Why? Happy Halloween. <laughs> no, uh, you know, the odds no, are we have lots of listeners. April. <laughs> Maybe someone is listening on Halloween. If that's you. I have a headache right now. Uh, it's not those things. Oh, God. Well, probably not those. Um, 50 to 70% of people with this disease actually experience seizures. Uh, and while this is going on, remember, you have swelling in your brain or your spinal uh-huh. cord. So you can have memory problems or uh-huh. a whole host of neurological problems associated with the brain, spinal cord, and the nerves in general. Uh, Neurocystocercosis is actually the leading cause of acquired epilepsy and seizure disorders in the world. Oh, good. Uh, there are thought to be about 50 million people at any given time with neurocystocercosis in the world. Which That's is a lot. <laughs> It's a lot of people. Uh, wow. Now, the most common regions, here we go. The most common reasons to see this infections are in Central and South America, Eastern Europe, Sub-Saharan Africa, and I guess also some parts of Asia. So lucky for most of our listeners, uh, this is not common in North America, the UK, or Australia, which covers a pretty large percentage of our listeners. So mm-hmm. most of you are safe. The collective uh, sigh you hear is in- all of your listeners, right? <laughs> right. Uh, Getting rid of the cysts and the infection can involve uh, medicine or even surgery to remove them, which seems awful given the location in your central nervous system. Don't uh-huh. usually have people cutting into that. No. It is a pretty serious situation. Uh, 4 to 12% of people with the disease experience strokes due to the oh. cysts in their brain, which naturally can lead to death. Uh-huh. So worldwide, uh, neurocystocercosis is actually the most common disease that affects the central nervous system. And like I said before, we're pretty safe here in North America, but naturally it has been diagnosed in people who have traveled to other countries. So mm-hmm. travelers beware. Kirk, uh, that's, I just got back. Uh, that's what I wanted trip. to talk about. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Okay. You were in Scotland. That's not really yeah. a concern. Part of mm. me feels like you should have gone first so we could have uplifted right? folks and to send them home with this is is real rough you know it's, isn't uh, it we take we take turns going first this is the luck of the draw i do want to shout out to my sources this week uh there's a science direct article called neurocystocercosis from 2019 pretty straightforward title there and also an excellent article on medical news today called what is neurocystocercosis it's terrible um, so is what it you is want a pork chop yeah i got pork chops you guys in Who's no in? I, no? I'm good. 
Uh, you're lost. Wash your hands. Mm -hmm. You guys, that's yeah. it. I will be washing my hands. I'm hoping the people at the factory wash their hands and didn't no just come doubt. back from a vacation oh, in God. Eastern Europe or uh, Central or South America. But um, awesome, you guys. Uh, Brett, thanks so much for being yeah, on, man. No way, man. On, Thank you Brett. both for having me. It's my pleasure, and hopefully I'll be back again at some point. Yeah, maybe Lots of fun. maybe next time we won't do uh, Parasite like that again, but I make no parasites. Let's not. Let's I mean, not. I feel like uh, maybe I should, if Brett is on again, I should make sure that we could all do parasites just to oh. make him feel at home. <laughs> gross. That's awful. <laughs> That's terrible. Oh my gosh. Oh. Hey, thank you, everybody, Thanks, so much. Everybody. We've had a lot of new followers in the last month. I hope you guys are having a good time. Uh, thanks for sticking around, and uh, we'll see everybody next week. Yeah, see y'all next week. Later. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange. <laughs>